Hey, good morning. If you're out there, you want to come in here nice and quick, we're going to get started. It is good to see you today. Today we're going to be looking at the prophet Elijah, uh, truly one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I love this guy. And uh, as we do, I, I, I was reminded of a verse this week, a, a friend posted it, and, and it really just, it's kind of been where I've been sitting all week, sitting with this verse and, and sitting with this person, Elijah. It's, the, it's from the book of James, and it says, the, the fervent prayer of a person who is righteous is powerful and effective. There's great power when a person decides they're just going to lift up their hearts to God. And, um, and it really, all week long as I've listened to that verse, I've, been, um, I've just been moved to think about my own prayer life, to think about where I am, where I stand these days with, with prayer and talking to God and, and believing, believing that um, he can make the impossible happen. Uh, if this is your first time this morning, I, I, let, me, let me say it this way. Try us again next week, okay? Um, it's, it's not that it's going to be a bad day. It's just not going to be a normal day. And I don't know, maybe no days are normal, but uh, we, we got all practiced up Thursday night with our music. Shelly has been, she's had a, a voice problem going. It seems like everybody that teaches kids these days has some vocal crud going on. And so uh, Stephanie Barton was going to be the one doing, you know, the majority of the singing today. She calls me yesterday morning. I can't talk. And so, uh, you know, we're kind of doing a quick scramble. What do we, I did not think you wanted me to sing. Tyler's out of town. So we said, hey, let's do this instead. This month, this month we're looking at uh, recruiting for camp, getting ready to, to fill this place with kids who, who need a connection with God. This was sitting on your seat this morning as you walked in, your official invitation to day camp. So registration has begun. I thought it'd be good to spend some time this morning talking about this thing and why it's so important, why it's so important now, but why it's so important to the fabric of our life to, as a church. Uh, if you're to go all the way back to 1995, I was much, much younger and um, I, I, was, I was asked to come to this church, and they gave me uh, six things that they wanted to see happen. And, and one of them on the list was, uh, we need to attract and hold young families. And we started looking at everything we were doing as a church and realized that while we were, while we were very sincere in our efforts toward uh, reaching kids and young uh, kids, we were not always the best at it. You know, we were kind of struggling in our, in our ability with reaching kids. And so we started looking at things that we were doing that we could kind of just do better and, and, and really uh, captivate imagination and heart and spirit. So we bought a box of steroids and we started shooting up Vacation Bible School. Boom, 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 boom. We just, we wanted to see this thing that we called Vacation Bible School go crazy. And the funny thing is the steroids, in reality, the steroids were prayer. We just prayed and prayed and prayed, God, use us, use us to reach the young families and the kids of this, of this neighborhood and of this community. And I'll tell you what, it was, it was, such, a, it was such a turning point for us as a church. We went from a, a church that was, again, trying hard to a church that really started just hitting out of the park. It was crazy. It was crazy what was happening. I remember at that time, there was a girl who had been part of the church, you know, all of her life, little kid, and she comes to me at one point, and she says, you got to understand, 
our church doesn't do things like this. And she said it with excitement. She was blown away at what God had done. So, so this has been, I think this, what camp is, has been a big piece of, um, it's been a big piece of the, the overall uh, DNA of who we are and who we become as a church. And, you know, you go all the way back. I mean, my goodness, that would have been um, late 90s. And John Beaker was involved back then. He was younger. He was uh, blacker haired. Better looking. And, uh, better looking. Okay, that's, that's what you think. But anyway. Um, <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. But Yeah, right. You, you walked into this, and um, I think God really used this. He used you to grow kids, but he used camp to grow you. Definitely. Definitely. When we first came here uh, years ago, I remember, uh, I mean, we were believers. It's not that we, we didn't know who Christ was or that we weren't Christians, but I think that uh, we were maybe a little reticent to get involved, especially with kids, because at that point in time, Sue and I didn't have any kids, and so the idea of getting involved in a camp-type ministry was just really foreign to us. And in, in my own mind, in my own heart, I was like, I can't do this. Mm. I don't know, uh, you know how, to, how I would interact, how, what I'm supposed to do. And I really feel like there are people that are just much better prepared, and this is just best left to the professionals. Mm. So, uh, but I did remember a story uh, from the Bible that talked about how uh, there were kids that came to Jesus and he had an interesting response to them. His disciples were kind of holding the kids at bay uh, and, and kind of being like, you know, Jesus is a busy guy. He's got to pray. He's got to prep to talk. You know, he has sermons to do and such. And um, he is too busy for, you know, for you to come to him. And Jesus' response was, no, don't you get it? The kingdom of God belongs to people just like this, in part because they'll receive it mm -hmm. uh, with, the, with the heart of a child. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I recognized kids matter to Jesus. And I knew mm. even back then mm. that uh, we weren't going to just say, all right, we're, we're going to you know, open the, uh, the doors and we'll allow 25 kids to every leader. We, we just weren't going to do that. And so I remember feeling like, okay, kids matter to Jesus. I can do nothing. I can add very little value other than being a warm body and showing up. That I can do. Hmm. And uh, God took that very, very little bit and, uh, and used it. He took your willingness. Yeah, he took your willingness to do well, something great. Well, that was all great. I had. Yeah, right. Was willing. Okay, but you, matter to you. But you did have more than that. You just didn't realize it yet. Well, and that, and it's, it's cool the way it unfolded. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing that happened, too, you, you alluded to it there, is um, a lot of people, when they get involved in kids' ministry, they, they view it as, as kind of a, a necessary thing. Hey, if we're going to have adults in the room, we've got to do something for the kids. And instead, really, working with the kids helped you to see this really is what the kingdom of God is all about. This is, this is where the action is. I never knew uh, that, I mean, I... I I'm so thankful to God for the gift of salvation, yeah. right? That we can have a relationship with him. But what I didn't know uh, until, until camp, really, was that there was another gift that God had for me that I, I knew nothing about, that he wanted to, to show me that I could be used in a way that I, I never dreamed. Yeah. And it was almost like uh, just 
opening a gift on Christmas and realizing I, I have this for you. Yeah. You just got to be willing to open it. And, yeah. and trust yeah. me that all you have to do is be a warm body. Yeah. I'll work through you. Huh. Don't worry about the rest huh. of it. I got this. That's cool. That's cool. You were a little kid. I mean, a little, just a little guy showing up to this thing. Your parents were kind of involved, but yeah. outside of that, you're just, well, how did it impact you as a kid? I can tell you, I mean, again, Shelly and I have a unique perspective uh, because from like January until two weeks after camp, this is what consumed our family's lives um, and in a very, very positive, good way. Uh, but I think the, the thing that blew me away each and every year was the amount of work that went into camp, even as a little kid. Uh, there were so many cool pieces that, again, I got like the behind the scenes looks at that I still like can, I still like well up with emotion, like because some of this stuff was so stinking cool, whether it was walking through Dominic's with Bob the Tomato or <laughs> uh, going to Camp Faraway where, you know, you've got nights and all this cool stuff. Um, there was one year we went to space and they literally had this huge, massive set uh, with all these... Complete with space shuttles. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, how yeah. did they get that in here? This is amazing. Uh, and there was a jungle safari. Like, there were so many different cool elements that are flashbulb memories for me. And knowing, um, even, even as a kid, knowing how many people had their hands involved in little pieces of that, I think really impacted me. And it, it drew me into to taking home the message of each of those camps. It drew mm. me into um, to wanting to, to show, like, all right, because somebody worked so hard on this, I want, I want to know what they're trying to get through to me. I want to know, I want to take home what, they're, what they've been working so hard on. Uh, so again, a little bit of a unique perspective, but I, I love just how wildly imaginative uh, the, all of our, our camp creators are. Yeah. Jaron, your, your role in this, so I mean, you, you were part of what was, and you're, you're part of what is now. Different roles. You showed up as um, a little older than a kid. I mean, early, early 20s, not even married. What was your first role? Do you remember? Yeah, my first role, I had to confirm it with somebody when I got off a of first service. Um, I think it was a small group leader. Okay. So I think I was 20. So... Yeah, right before I got married. So. <laughs> I married I remember, young. Um, I remember yeah. you being an actor in, in oh, a yes. couple of them, I, was I believe. I a squeaky, yeah. feminine person. I don't remember. <laughs> and I squealed a lot. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. And I wore a really fun hat. But all, then all the kids then started, girls started wearing like oh, big fluffy fat that's hats. Funny. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. So you go um, from that role, yeah. you know, being involved mm -hmm. in that way to now we come over to the property here. And we finally get to yeah. realize this dream of, of doing camp at this place yeah. uh, after moving. And, um, and you're asked, you know, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and lead this thing? What, what, you know, what's that transition like? And how um, how's that grown you? The leading it was, was um, I, I didn't know what to do. And obviously, I, I think God knows what to do. And so um, where do you start, right? But um, God just puts... God's so magical. He's so amazing. He just places people, mm. and he just, he does it. It's all him. The, the placements of people at camp where everybody serves is all him, mm. um, and it's beautiful. Um, but to get, the cool thing about the role that I'm in is that I get to see it, yeah. and I get to see all of these beautiful people come together and use their talents and gifts that the Holy Spirit allows them to do, and um, 
they don't always realize just how amazing they are with the spirit in them, but I get to see that. And so um, it's just really neat. We all have so many gifts. And when we allow God to, to, to work in us, to use them, it's just the coolest thing. And so leading it, that's just the pleasure of that. But honestly, um, every year I'm like, don't panic. God's got this. And sure enough, like pa- Patrick, my husband's always like, aren't you nervous? Like what, what, how many leaders you got? What's going on? And, and I'm like, we got this. Like, <laughs> God's got this. It's okay. It'll all come into place. Um, and so I just love that. It's he always beautiful. shows up. Yeah, he it always really, it's shows total up. dependence on him, which that's where we need to mm-hmm. live. But I also love this, this idea that you're talking about that um, it ends up being like this week-long lab where, mm-hmm. granted, I mean, every, every Sunday, there are all kinds mm-hmm. of people involved behind the scenes, I, things we don't it's know. It's amazing. But we yeah. get to see it all at once all in at one once. week. It all comes together. So like, Real power in there. It is. It's like, um, it's down to, like I think I said in the first start, like, like the people who bring water, the people who bring like the yummy snack, like that's no joke. That's super important. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the person who built something but couldn't be at camp but has wonderful gifts with their hands and they can build amazing structures that like nobody else can do. Um, and then and then there's people who can sing and act and dance. And then there's just really amazing small group leaders who are really patient with five-year-olds who are scared. And then there's the medic who, you know, is cleaning up a wound really calmly and... I, Without every single piece, it just doesn't work. And mm-hmm. so I think that's what's so neat about camp. There's just so many people involved, and they're all just moving. And God is just, I don't know, he's really present. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's cool. really cool. I meant, I forgot to mention, by the way, these are pictures from it's a couple of years ago now. And yeah, we went with some of the older pictures because we knew that some of your kids have grown. Mm-hmm. And, and I know your kid's going to pop up, and you're going, oh, that... Finley, you come up in here. And I mean, no, it's <laughs> kind of fun to, to see how much, so how much cool. we've changed, how much we've She's grown, actually, but so, it's, yeah, it's so really cool. Yeah, it's cool. So all along, one of the pieces that's been really vital in this is music. And, you know, you started as a camper in the crowd, singing along, learning motions, and then you were called up to be there with Kara Weber as one of the, one of the sidekicks. And now you're actually leading music for this part. Uh, tell us about the role of music in camp. Why, it, why is music important to what we do? Yeah, um, I think music is super important um, next to the skits, which are awesome. Like, Patrick and Jaren put these things together, and it's crazy. The, the characters that they pull out and the stories that they tell are awesome. Um, and the kids remember Blabbington and his obnoxious voice. <laughs> and John remembers losing his voice. Um, and kids still give me Kit Kats, you know, <laughs> um, because I, my character was Kit Kat. But they don't necessarily remember every single word that was said in the skit. They remember the message. They remember who was good, who was bad. They remember yelling, no, but they don't necessarily remember every single word. And I think music has a way of doing that, of taking every single word that we want them to walk away with um, and just putting it to music and putting it to motions. And it has a way of just tying all that together. And they, they remember every single piece that we want them right to. Right down to, if, we'll, yeah. if we do a song from camp in church a couple years okay. later, you'll see kids kind of doing the motions down we were, low or whatever. We were at, and even leaders doing the motions. We were at Arctic Blast uh, with the high schoolers this summer, or this, I'm sorry, this uh, January. And one of the songs that was at camp came on, and you could see, I mean, it wasn't all out. But, you know, there was some little, like... They're in there. They're in there. Yeah, music. I mean, you know the power of music. You carry that with you. So that message stays with you. I asked, I asked each of them to share what's a, what's a dream you have for this year. So start down with you, Brian. What, what's your dream? What do you, what do you hope to see happen? That's a complex question. 
but the I think the the one thing that always hits me when I when I walk away from camp, and I kind of you know go through my own review of how it went, and you know who, what do I need to follow up with, and how do we go from here? The thing that smacks me in the face every year is the palpable moment in the in the skit that the kids realize the bad guy might win. The bad guy um, is powerful, and that because again, the, the bad guy's been a variety of different forms throughout the years, uh, going all the way back to Doctor Nose. I remember right, Doctor right. Nose clear as day, and like we were all terrified, the kids crying, so scared. Um, <laughs> but that that fear and that anger that the that Satan essentially might win, uh, and the kids they they audibly, when they realize it when it clicks for them. They audibly scream, no, no, don't, you can't do, no, stop. And they're trying to guide the main character, whoever's caught up in the situation, back to the light. And yet they're, they're watching and you can see everyone's on pins and needles. Because again, the, the adults, we, we know how it plays out. We, we get it. But a five-year-old doesn't. A five-year-old's looking and saying, what are you doing? This, you can't make that decision. That's the wrong decision. You need to go the other way. And at the end of that day, the conversations that are uh, made possible by that in small groups are what change the, change the lives of students. Mm. It's what changes the lives of those kids potentially forever. Mm. So my dream for this year is that that moment, whatever day it happens on, that, that moment um, is just as palpable as it has ever been. And then that those conversations, those, those hearts are softened, that that anger that, that the bad guy might win is there, that the fear, that the, the sadness that somebody has made a decision that might not be uh, the, the best for them, that, that these kids start to lock it in and ha- they're able to have conversations with their small group leaders that changes their lives forever. Great. John, how about you? In the first service, we talked about uh, the moment, and it's just, it's so palpable and, and fun for me to watch as kids come through the door, and uh, whether it's the first time they catch a glimpse of the, the games we're going to play or the crafts we're going to do or the set that's amazing or the music that's, that's just, uh, I don't know, um, it's, it's, you can see on their face, wow, hmm. that, that moment of this is awesome. I can't believe that, that this was done for me. I love that moment, and, and it happens again and again, and you could, I, I get to stand back at the door sometimes and just watch them as they come in, and there's just this sense of anticipation uh, that something really great mm. is going to happen, yeah. and, and in the yeah. first service, we talked about how uh, that there's such a, a cool analogy for us, because God's done that for, for us. I mean, when we go out and see the, the night sky or uh, the things that he's made, that it captures our attention. Mm. And in much the same way that a little kid can come in here and go, this was done for me, that, that's just very real to me that, wow, he, he loves us that much. So my dream for this year is to see that look on as many faces as, uh, as possible, yeah. right? Our boat... Is a, it's a tangible size here, right? We, we can fit as many as we can fit in this room and in this program that we're going to do. 
Um, and I guess for me, I know that God's desire is for as many kids as possible uh, to come to, to know that he loves them, that they're made in his image, that he wants them. Because we live in a world where kids don't always know that they're wanted, that they're desired, and God does want them. He mm. does love them. And that moment of, oh, he does, yeah. it is so cool. So, yeah. um, I don't know, our name is South Field, right? The fields are white under harvest. And our job is to, to throw the gospel message out there as far and wide as we can. And so I, I guess my dream is that, that the boat would be filled to bursting hmm. uh, with as, hmm. many, as many kids as can be here. Awesome. Kids from my neighborhood, your neighborhood, or around the block. I mean, God loves them all. Yeah. And yeah. wants them to know him. That's beautiful. Jaron, yours really kind of piggybacks on a lot of what John said, but take it further. Yeah. Um, him and I were talking. I was like, that's so cool. We, are, this, we have the same thought. Um, my dream every year, though, is that um, every kid, every adult, everybody involved knows that they're loved knows that they're important, but more importantly, that God has provided us a Bible. He's provided us his word, that if we know that, if we know the truth of what that says, we can kind of conquer and face everything. I mean, that's kind of where last year's theme was. Last year's theme was, you know, we, we are fighting an enemy. We're fighting a battle. Mm -hmm. And with God's word, we can fight that. And so same thing with this year, that like not only do I come in and I know that I'm loved because the world around me is swirling, our families, everything is torn in this world. You know, yeah. we come from yeah. broken families, yeah. our schools. I mean, everything is just, ugh. But when I come to camp, I can feel God. I can see God. I can see all the work and effort that he's put in because he loves me. I have people around me who care enough to do this for me. And for four days, I can be safe. For four days, I can just be who I am, and everyone around me is okay with that. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to perform anything. I can just be. And um, that comes from God's word. God tells us, you know, you don't, you don't have to do anything. I've got this. Like, I love you. you. You don't have to be anything but my creation. And I just want that so deeply. I want our kids to know God's word mm. so that they can be rooted. And mm. they're our next generation. Yeah. Without yeah. that, we don't have a next generation. Yeah. So. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful dream because I think there, there are a lot of kids, like you said, that their, their home life or their, their life overall is just so, it's so troubled. It's so, it's yeah. so awful. It's mixed messages everywhere. And they yeah. come here yeah. and just get this place that it's safe and I'm loved. Yep. And, and to hear that for, for those days is it's it's just huge. huge. It's, it's huge. really huge. Yeah. There's security in that. Yeah. There's security in God's word, yeah. in God's community and God's church. Yeah. I want them to feel that. Your dream was more a programming dream. Yeah. I mean, here you had this awesome song last year, Battles, that just kind of tied everything together. And your dream is that you find another battle. Right? Yeah. My dream was always to one-up last year. So, I mean, go from beach balls and water guns to a balloon drop to a confetti cannon. And it's like, 
can we really top that? I don't know. Um, but more importantly, the, the song last year, Battles, um, it's the one that we do have the video for. And at the end, the kids aren't just singing along. They are shouting along. And every single time I watch it, I just break down crying the second they start. Um, and just to find that, that song this year, which I haven't found yet, um, that ties together everything um, in the skit and... Um, just the message that we want them to take home, and yeah. they can just shout those words. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mine, mine really comes down to that we would rediscover the power of the ask. Uh, this right here, you've been given a card that is a tool for you to make an ask. You know, uh, you got a neighbor kid, you've got you've got a nephew, a niece, a grandchild, your child that that you actually get them here, ask them. So it's not just the power of asking them, but it's also the power of asking God. God, we need you to show up in a huge way. We, we, we cannot and do not do this on our own. We need your power to do this. Right down to you know choosing a song, everything, uh, recruiting people, you name it, getting a set together, all that stuff. God, we need you in this. And so that we realize once again the, the great power found in asking people to be a part of something and asking God to help us. Uh, as as we try to do something absolutely beautiful for him and for people who need God so desperately. So thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing with us this morning. Now, normally by now, you've had at least 10 minutes of singing. You've had a chance to move. So, so what we're going to do is give you a chance to go ahead and stand up, get some blood in your legs. If you're an extrovert, you can say hi to people. If you're an introvert, you can wave. All right, go ahead. <laughs> All right, hopefully that gave you the motion you needed. Go ahead and have a seat once again. And as you're seated, our, our servers are coming right now, and they'll go ahead and receive the morning offering. And in terms of announcements, the main thing that we want you to be aware of today, you received the links this morning, and in the links is a link to go ahead and get registered for camp. So you can go ahead and follow that, get registered. You can also forward this to other people so that they can go ahead and get registered as well. Uh, I said earlier, we're going to spend some time talking about Elijah today. If we were to go back to Southfield Big Kids right now, the first, the first fifth graders, and we were to do kind of a, a family feud kind of survey, if we were to ask them, what's your greatest fear? I, I suggest we get, I, I, I imagine we get a pretty interesting list of suggestions, but somewhere in there, I am confident we'd hear something like this. I hate being alone in the dark. I don't like being alone in the dark. And it's not just that they don't like being alone. And it's not just that they don't like being in the dark. They don't like being alone in the dark. And honestly, if we were to ask for a show of hands, probably at least a couple people in the room that would say the same thing. I don't like being alone in the dark. If we were to put a label on Elijah's biography, I suspect it might be the words, alone in the dark. 
Elijah was a man who was living in incredibly dark times, and when we get the chance to hear his story, what we find is that he thought he was all alone. And we ourselves find ourselves in some dark times. And I suspect more often than not, we've thought, am I all alone? So we have a lot that we can learn from Elijah today. We're going to look at four chapters of his story, and there are about 10 sermons in here. So you're getting your money's worth today. We're, going to, we're just going to roll through his story so that we can understand how in the world do you live in a dark world and not be alone? How do you know that you're not alone? We've got to start by just developing the climate. What was going on that caused Elijah to feel that he was so very alone? So chapter 16, we start to unfold this, and it goes through a list of kings, the kings of Israel. Remember, Israel and Judah are now divided, two tribes to the south, ten tribes to the north, and the northern tribes, basically from the very beginning, just have no interest in following God. Uh, immediately, Jeroboam sets up a new form of worship. Here are a couple golden calves. Let's worship those instead of Jehovah. And so that's the direction that the people go. Jeroboam reigns for 22 years. And, and he is an evil king. And what we find is that king after king after him is always compared to Jeroboam. And more often than not, it is said he was even more evil than Jeroboam. So he is like the new low watermark, and everybody just seems to be getting worse and worse than him. 22 years pass, he dies, his son Nadab takes over. He begins to rule, he rules for two years, and there's this guy named Basha, he doesn't like the way Nadab is leading, he decides he wants to be king instead, and so what does he do? He assassinates him. So this starts to be part of the climate of the time. Not only do you have evil kings, but you have kings who have a short reign, someone doesn't like him, kills him. You can imagine the instability that's creating in the nation, especially when you go over to Judah and Asa's ruling the whole time, 52 years, uninterrupted, godly man. And so you have this comparison of the two nations going on. So he kills him. He doesn't only kill him. He kills his entire family, every descendant. He just wipes them out. Now that's what nations did at that time. They got rid of their competitors. But you remember, that's not what Israel did. Do you remember when Saul died and David takes over? He says, are there any relatives of Saul left that I can bless? Not that I can wipe out, but that I can bless. He wanted to bless them. He did not want to destroy them. This is the climate in which Elijah is about to do his ministry. There's constant war going on between Basha and Asa, between Judah and Israel. He reigns for 24 years, and it says what? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the example of Jeroboam. He continued the sins of Jeroboam. He continued idol worship. His son takes over. Ella lasts for two years. Guy comes on the scene named Zimri. He doesn't like the way Ella's doing the job. He makes plans to kill him. Ella gets drunk. He kills him. He's done with him gets rid of him, and what does he do? He wipes out again the entire royal family. Now the family of Basha is gone as well. You can just feel the, the, the turmoil of the times. When the people find out what Zimri has done, uh, they're, they're just not really happy with this at all. They, Zimri's reign lasts for all of seven days. And when the people find out what he's done, they come after Zimri. Zimri locks himself in the palace, he starts it on fire, he kills himself. And we're on to yet another king. Well, not quite yet. Because a lot of people think Omri should take over, he was the captain of the army. 
Other people think Tibney should take over. What a fun pair of names. Anybody about to have a baby? Consider Tibney or Omri. Interesting names. But anyway, they fight it out. Tibney gets killed. Omri takes over. And the Bible tells us he's even more evil than any king before him. And he fathers a son, and the son's name is Ahab. And if you know any part of this, bi- part, part, any of this part of the Bible, you, you finally recognize the name, Ahab. Because Ahab is married to Jezebel. And they're incredibly wicked as rulers. He puts her in charge of worship, and she just takes the nation down an absolutely abominable path. This is where the country is when Elijah comes on the scene in terms of politics and in terms of religion. So so you have this climate that's taking place. There's another piece of the climate that you don't want to miss. And that is that the people had decided religiously not necessarily to reject Jehovah altogether. They liked Jehovah. Jehovah brought them from Egypt. He brought them them through hard times. They liked Jehovah. They just liked other gods too. So they they weren't God and God alone. They were God and. They worshiped Jehovah, but they'd also worship a cow, a golden cow. They'd worship Jehovah, but they'd also worship Baal. They They were going after multiple gods. It's called syncretism. When we decide not to, not to worship God exclusively, but we say, I like a little God, but we kind, of, we kind of a la carte our religion. We start picking and choosing pieces we like from here and from there. And we say, we want all of these things and not just one and one alone. So this is the climate into which Elijah walks. Here he is. And, and, and even his name speaks his ministry. His name, Elijah, L. That's the name for God, Jah, the name for Jehovah. You put them together. His name is, my God is the Lord. Every time somebody asks him, what's your name? My God is the Lord. What? No, no, I asked you your name. My, my God is the Lord. That's my name. Other people are saying, yeah, my God is the Lord. And so is Baal. You know, and so is the golden cow. And so is anything else I feel like worshiping. And, and Elijah says, no, there's, there's one God in heaven. Just one. I worship that God. So he comes into ministry at a time that is just political upheaval all over the place. And religiously, the people like God, but they like other parts as well. In chapter 17, he issues a challenge. He issues a challenge to Ahab. It comes from, it comes from the mouth of God. We read, now Elijah who is from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. He's able to pray, the book of James tells us, and the rain stops. Now why choose that? Why rain? What we find in the Old Testament is that when the God of heaven chose to challenge one of the false gods of the earth, something that people were worshiping. He'd go after the heart of what that God was all about. So Baal, Baal's the God of fertility. Baal's the God that makes growth happen. You're, you're entering spring, new crops, you'd go sacrifice to Baal in hopes of great crops. God, Jehovah God, is taking his finger and he's sticking it in the eye of Baal and saying, Baal's worthless. You, you can do whatever you want. He's not going to listen to you. He can't listen to you. He's a stone. He's not real. So the rain stops. The dew stops. And a drought begins. A tremendous drought. Elijah has to live through the drought. It, it impacts him too. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the, down to the brook Kareth. 
where, where it flows into the Jordan River. And I want you to, I want you to sit there, and, and, and while you're there, I'll, I'll make sure you're fed. You'll have a water source, and I'll have birds feed you. I'll have birds, and, and the birds that feed you will be ravens. Now, I love birds. My family thinks I'm nuts, but I love birds. It's been a great bird week at our house. I mean, things, a gross beak showed up. They're, they're flying through for their two weeks, so got the safflower out so that they can eat. And the goldfinches are finally gold again, and they're flying all over the place. I saw an eastern towhee this week. I've never, I've never seen one of those before. I'm standing looking out my window. An oriole showed up. That was amazing. And this morning, I even saw the hummingbird. They're all back. And, you know, and when, when I'm going after the birds, I mean, I, I like to, I have a wren house, I have a finch feeder. I've never walked into the feedloft and said, do you have a raven feeder? Do you have something that'll feed a blackbird? I hate blackbirds. I hate ravens. I don't like those things. They come in and what do they do? First of all, they start pecking at all the other birds. They're just mean. They're nasty. They eat all the food. They throw it around. When those birds show up at my feeder, I usually just don't feed for a few days. They go away. And then we go back to the nice birds all over again. God says, Elijah, I'm going to feed you. Not with goldfinches. I'm going to feed you with ravens. You look up pictures of ravens on the internet, and you know what you'll see? You'll see them sitting on piles of garbage in a, in a junk heap, eating and fighting each other for every last scrap. What is God doing with this? I think in part he's saying, I'm going to supply for you from the most unexpected sources. I'm going to prove to you that I'm God and I care. And I'm going to supply for you in a way that you would never anticipate. I'm going to use a selfish, scroungy blackbird to give you bread. And he doesn't end there. Because that brook dries up, and he says, you got to get on the move. And he tells him actually to leave Israel. I want you to go to Zarephath. you got to go to a city of Sidon. So I want you to leave Israel. And, and I've actually instructed a widow to feed you there. Now, it's one thing to expect a raven to feed you. It's another thing to expect a widow who's a foreigner to feed you. You got to understand something about widows at that time. Uh, This widow would not have had a great life insurance policy on her husband so that when he died, uh, she's well off for the rest of her days. When, When a man died and left a wife a widow, she was left with no property rights. She was left with nothing but the generosity of other people. And this woman was quite alone. She had a son, and that's it. And we read in the Bible that that day she woke up and she put together her to-do list. And this was what was on her list. Fix a meal and die. She was literally going to take the last of what she had, make a meal, and she was going to watch her son die, and she was going to die along with him. Elijah comes along, and what does he say? What, you got a little flour? You got a little water? Make me some food. Have you ever had to ask something of someone who doesn't have as much as you? To ask someone, it's one thing to ask a rich person, share what you have, share of your extra, but you ever had to ask somebody who doesn't have much to share what what they have with you? This incredibly unlikely source, a widow who's almost out of food. He says, I want you to share with me. And look what he says, actually. He says, don't be afraid. Go home. Do as I've said. Make a small loaf of bread for me and bring it to me. 
and then make something for yourself and your son. And this is what the Lord has said. If you do this, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Now there are two words in here that you can't miss. But first. He doesn't say this is what we're going to do. For the next two weeks, you're just going to see that your flower is never going to run out. For the next two weeks, you're going to see this endless amount of water. And then you'll know that you can trust me, and then you can go ahead and make me a meal. He says, first, take what little you have, make me a meal, and then have the rest for yourself, and God will supply. But first, this is part of the unlikely way that God supplies for us. Very often we believe that, that you know, we got to wait for something else, something to come. We, we'll wait, we'll wait. We gotta, God's got to prove first that he's trustworthy. And God says, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to step out. I want you to step out where, where you don't see reason to have faith. And when you do, you'll be surprised at what I am willing to do. So this challenge, this challenge leads to a drought, a drought that has the whole nation in suffering. And it brings us to chapter 18, which is the confrontation. This is probably the part of Elijah's story that is most well known to most of us, the, the time in which he comes and confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I, I pulled some uh, pictures for you of Mount Carmel. This is, this is the mountain. That obviously, the church wasn't there at that time in the buildings. It was just much more natural looking. But this is, this is the mountain looking from the now north down to the south of the nation. Uh, it's south of the, south of the nation of Israel. And I love this. I love this mountain. We, we got the chance, because of some friends, we got the chance to go to Israel. And I remember of all the, of all the days, this day, to go to to go stand on this mountain and know right here, right here the finger of God came down from the sky and, and touched an altar. Right here. Oh, it's just, it was an incredibly mind-blowing moment to know this is the place. This is the place where God did this tremendous miracle. If you look kind of off to the east, you see off in the distance, down here at the bottom, there's a grove. And a little further, this is where he's going to take the prophets of Baal in a little bit and kind of complete the story. But as you look out, you see the, the Jezreel Valley. Way up at the top, you see Mount Tabor or Mount Tabor, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And just a little to the left is a little town called Nazareth. I want you to think about this. Jesus grew up and is a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eligible to go to day camp. As a little kid, he'd, look up, he'd wake up and he'd look out in the distance and he could see Mount Carmel. He could see the place that the finger of God had touched the earth. He could see it with his own eyes. You look, you look down to the south and you see way up over here in the, in the left corner, Megiddo. Megiddo, Armageddon. The place where the final battle will happen. That battle is going to happen in the view of Mount Carmel. This is like God, this is God's fighting grounds. This is God's battleground. And then, and then when you look out to the west, you see the Mediterranean Sea. This is, this is the view that Elijah would have had from the top of the mountain. This is, this is everything that he is able to see. The Bible says, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, there's the, the next part describes what's going on in the life of Ahab. And basically what we're told is Ahab take, has a servant. His name is Obadiah. He's the palace administrator. And he wants him to go on the search for, for some food and water. Uh, the drought has become severe. And the part in parentheses is the part I want you to see. It says, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. 
while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. Why is this significant? Because Elijah believes he's alone in the dark. Elijah believes there is no one left. But there's this guy named Obadiah. And not only is Obadiah still loyal to God, he's, he's the schindler of his time. He takes a hundred people and he protects them and he provides them food and he provides them water. He was not alone. He was not, as much as he might have thought he was alone, he was not alone. The moment comes for the confrontation. The people are there. The prophets of Baal are there. King Ahab is there. They're all there. And this guy's standing up against everyone that's there that day. He looks at them, he says, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. So again, it's not that the people did not believe in Jehovah. They believed in Jehovah and Baal and the golden cows and all kinds of other things. And what the passage says when you interpret it properly is that it was causing them in their spiritual walk to hobble, to limp that they were not walking spiritually solidly, but they, they were limping along because they were wavering, hobbling between two opinions. And Elijah's saying, you got to choose. It's God alone or it's your false God, but you don't get to play it both ways. You don't get to have it both ways. It's not, I believe the Bible, but only the parts that fit with our culture and our times. I either believe it or I don't. I either believe in God or I don't. I don't get to pick and choose the parts of God I like and the parts of God I don't. I either believe in him or I don't. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But you got to choose. And the next part of the passage is just sobering and sad. It says, but the people were completely silent. They didn't speak up at all. It, Yay, Jehovah. Baal. They're just quiet, pretending like they're going along, keeping their opinion to themselves. Elijah's saying, you got to speak up. you got to choose. And so we have the story, the story where he says, here's, here's what we're going to do. You're going to build an altar. You're going to put an offering on it. And you're going to call to Baal. And he's got to be the igniter. No matches, no gas, no nothing. <laughs> he's got to be the one to light the flame. And they start. They start chanting. They start praying. They start dancing. They do everything they've got to do to get Baal's attention. And it says after a while, obviously nothing's happening. The meat's just sitting there. Nothing's happening. It says Elijah actually starts to get a little fun with them. He sticks up. A, he picks up a stick, a, a figurative stick, and he starts to poke them a little bit. He says, you know, and maybe you're not screaming loud enough. Maybe your God went on vacation, didn't like the drought. He headed on out of here. He, he even says, I'm not kidding, maybe your God's sitting on the pot. Maybe, maybe, maybe you need to get his attention. Really, it's in there. It's in the Bible. He's saying all these things. And what does it cause the people to do? It causes them to scream louder, to cut themselves more, to do everything they can to get the attention of a stone. Elijah finally has enough. He finally has enough. And, and I think it's just, it's a, it's a stunning moment. I think in some ways it reinforces his feeling of being alone in the dark. Because he alone starts taking rocks, rocks that had made up what was the altar of God, 
12 of them at all, and he starts stacking them, stacking them by himself, stacking them alone, and then he puts the wood on the altar, and then, he, and then he puts the sacrifice on the altar, and then he says, I've got an idea. Bring some water. And he pours water on it. He pours more water on it. He drenches the offering. He has water in a trench around, and, and he's basically, okay, if, if Jehovah is real, we're going to find out. And he prays, prays the most beautiful prayer. He prays, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people know that you are God and that I am your servant and I've done everything according to your word. No sooner are the words out of his lip and and the finger of God comes out of heaven, this fire comes out of heaven, and it blasts the offering and it consumes the wood. It says it consumes the rocks. It says it consumes the water all around the offering. And the people cry out. They finally speak. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There is one God in Israel and his name is Jehovah. And Elijah goes on to say, okay, so we've got some business to do. We've got some business to do. Seize the prophets of Baal. And they literally take them in this image down to the bottom of the mountain, down into the valley, and they kill them there. And the people are now considering themselves loyal to Jehovah. Now, everybody starts going to their home. Everybody starts going away. Uh, Elijah, Elijah tells uh, Ahab, you better, you better get on your way. Go, get something to eat and drink. I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. I hear the rain. It's coming. And so they all start heading out. And, and there's this beautiful scene, this just incredible scene, in which Elijah, Elijah gets on his knees there on the mountain. He gets on his knees, and his servant is there, and he gets on his knees. And the Bible says he curled up to pray. He just curled up to pray, and he's praying for rain. And he asks his servant, Take a look. Do you see anything? You remember that image? He's looking out over the Mediterranean Sea. I don't see anything. And so he prays again. And the Bible says, he says, he prayed seven times. And, and on the seventh time, the servant says, I see a little puff cloud over in the distance. He says, good enough. And he gets up and he starts running. He just gets on his way. And the rain is now on the way. So what a tremendous day of miracles. Fire from heaven. The rain is coming. Just an amazing time. And chapter 19 comes, and it says, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything that had happened, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. And so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Think about the day this man's just had. He called fire from heaven. He prayed a cloud into existence that led to a drenching rainstorm after three years of no rain. And now this little gnat is telling him, I'm going to kill you. I'm just kind of imagining Elijah going, you don't know who you're messing with. Are you ready? Boom, gone. You know, you're expecting something dramatic, something amazing. And, and, And yet what happens instead is... A crash. Just a spiritual, physical, emotional crash. Says Elijah fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. So he leaves Israel. He goes south. He leaves his servant there. And then he goes into the wilderness alone, traveling all day. He sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. It's a day later, folks. A day after praying fire from heaven, a day after praying rain from a cloud, he's just wishing to die. He says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. He has an encounter with God there in the wilderness. And God asks him a question. And the question is beautiful. And it's probing. 
he says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? I don't think he's asking him, what are you doing in the wilderness? He's asking, what are you, what are you doing here? How have you gone from calling fire from heaven, praying rain from a cloud, to just kill me now? What are you doing here? You know, I think, I think we need to hear this question from God from time to time. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Elijah answers. He answers as honestly as he can answer. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down the altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I am alone in the dark. It's incredibly dark, and I'm it. And I can't stand being alone anymore. I can't stand being the only one that stands up against this. I can't do it anymore. So what happens? God ministers to Elijah where he is and say, okay, you get your attitude together. You, you, you start loving me again, and then we'll talk. Where he is in his desperation, in his loneliness, in his suicidal thoughts, God speaks to him in that moment. What, do we do? what does he do? Well, first, in chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, we see God's provision. You know what God does first? He prepares him some food and he has him take a nap. God treats Elijah like a two-year-old. You ever had a cranky two-year-old? Here's a Twinkie, get in your crib. You know, that what you need right now is some food and a nap. That's it. And you kind of think, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. Weren't you expecting something more magical and spiritual? God's saying, you are exhausted. You're just exhausted. You need something good to eat, and you need some sleep. You know, for some of us, we are in a desperate place right now, and we don't know why. And you know what God is saying to us? You need a Twinkie and a nap. You are running and running and running and running. You think you're supernatural. You think you never have to have a break. Sabbath, schmabbath. You have nothing to do with it. You have no rhythms of rest in your life, and you wonder why you're constantly exhausted. This, isn't, this doesn't take a rocket surgeon to figure this one out, folks. You're tired. You need a nap. God gives him much-needed rest. Next, God gives him a fresh sense of his presence. It's a beautiful moment in which, you know, there's an earthquake, there's, there's, a, there's incredible wind, and it says God was not in those events. But then there's, then there's just this quiet voice, and it says God was in the voice. God makes his presence known once again to Elijah. You are not alone. I am here. I am with you. You know what I think we need as we, as we wander through the darkness together? The words of Jesus that say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Has the age ended yet? No. What does that mean? I am with you. You're not alone. You are not alone in the dark. God gives him a new partner. We're going to see Elisha next week. I don't know why in the world it was Elijah and Elisha. Why couldn't it be Elijah and Bob? It's so easy to get the two mixed up. But anyway, he gives him this new partner. And we'll look at that next week. And then God gives him a fresh perspective. And the fresh perspective is simply this. There are still thousands of people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You think you're alone, you are not. There are still people that have not bowed the knee. You think you are alone, you are not. You are not. So, 
like Elijah, you may find yourself saying, I am alone in the dark, and I feel desperate. Maybe the darkness just has you feeling very alone, and today you need to hear the words of Jesus, but you're not. I am with you. There are other people who have not yet bowed the knee, and they will not. Maybe God is providing for you from an unexpected source, and you're just not seeing it yet. You don't want to be fed by the ravens. You want goldfinches. And God's saying, I'm providing for you. Would you just receive what I'm giving you and receive it with joy? Maybe you're torn between two opinions. Maybe you're walking with a limp. You know, you, you have God and you have, I like these parts of the Bible, but not all the parts of the Bible. You have, you have the Bible and your opinion that goes along well with the culture and God's saying, you got to choose. You're going to limp until you choose. Maybe it's time to speak up and choose. Maybe God just has you right now saying, what are you doing here? And it's time to answer the question honestly. I love that, I love that Elijah didn't give God a Sunday school answer. He didn't give him something pretty that he thought God wanted to hear. He's just honest. I am alone. I am alone. And I am sad. And maybe it's time to pray. Again, James 5.16, that, that, that prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that, that the God who listened to Elijah is the God who listens to you? Do, do, you, do you crawl up in a ball and pray, let it rain, and look for the puff cloud, believing that God listens and God answers? Like I said, we had about 10 sermons here today. And I suspect that you've got to choose one and kind of rest in it. Where is God speaking you today? In that list, where is God speaking to you today? That, that's what we're going to do with our silence for communion. We're, going to, we're just going to sit with this list for a couple moments. Choose where God is speaking to you today. And then we'll, and then we'll move to the tables for communion. And while we do, we're going to be listening to the song that we heard at the beginning of the service. And I want, you, I want you to hear this song. Every time you hear this song by, from now on, this song about the cloud, I, want, I just want your mind to imagine this, this man curled up on the floor. God, send the rain. Send the rain. Now, I know some of you are thinking, the last prayer we need right now is send the rain. There's been too much already. I'm talking about spiritual rain. You're right. We don't need any more rain out there. But boy, do we need the spiritual rain. God, show me the cloud. Let it rain. So let's be quiet for a moment with these questions and these statements, and then we'll move to communion. no matter how dark it may be, no matter how dark it may seem, we are never alone. We are never alone. You are with us to the end of the age. We are never alone. And there are still people, there are still friends who have not bowed the knee. 
Give us the courage to pray, to pray for fire from heaven, to pray for the clouds, to pray for rain. In the name of Jesus, we pray in all this prayer. Amen. I'll see you next time.